Hello everybody and welcome back to another week of the Playsheet podcast here for your weekly fix of NFL. And Joe, I believe to kick us off, you wanted to start with some breaking news that's come out this week in terms of what has been offered to the NLPA. Yes, so the NFL has offered the NFLPA, that's the Players Association, the chance of having no preseason games. It's something we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and at the time we were concerned that there'd be more games chipped away and that that could threaten the season, and I guess this is probably another nail in the coffin. It's not the nail that's going to nail the lid on, but it's looking more and more likely that we might not have as much football as we would normally have this year in terms of regular season. There's nothing else left to cut anymore. If all the preseason games go, then you can only start taking away regular season games. And what do you think will be the general reception to that news? I mean, do you think that most players will be happy to stay at home and stay safe? Or do you think some of them will be itching to get out there and start practicing with potentially new teammates or even solidifying the rapport that they have with old teammates to improve on this season? I think this is a bit of a red herring, really. And I think that this is evidence of a league trying to draw the attention away. Basically, when you look at what some other professional sports leagues have done in the US, NBA springs to mind. They seem to have a more coherent plan of what they want to do. The NBA said early doors that they were going to set up the bubble at Disneyland. And I mean, that's quite progressed now. There are photos that came out this week of them building barbershops and all kinds of things. So the NBA has a plan. They said early what the plan was and they're following through with that plan. The NFL doesn't have that, and the players are aware of this. The players are asking for answers. You've had JJ Watt tweeting, you've had Patrick Mahomes tweeting, you've had senior players throwing tweets out there, throwing social media to ask what's going on. The NFL, I think, has responded rather than addressing the concerns of the players. They know players don't particularly like preseason games. No one who's not a third stringer really looks forward to preseason games. They're a risk of injury. There's no kind of you know stat padding to be had by them. They're not going to make your resume any better. Players don't want to play preseason. So the NFL has thought rather than address the concerns properly and do what the NBA has, they're almost just trying to kind of like put that all under the carpet and say, here, look, don't play any preseason games and hope it all goes away, which I don't think it will. I think that this is a bad idea. It basically means that they've lost all the leverage they would have had if they had to make a deal later for any reason. The NFL has no leverage if there's no preseason games and they still don't have a coherent plan to look after player safety. All in all, it's not very good. What do you think, Giles? Do you think that we'll have a full season of NFL football now? I think it's a tough one. It really is going to come down to how things progress with the virus in America. It's strange because you would think when, you know, you mentioned NBA before and you're comparing the two, you're talking about an open air sport versus an indoor sport, really. And you'd have thought that in that situation, the outdoor sport would be the one that would be safer to play. Obviously, I suppose the assumption is that there's potentially more bodily contact in NFL. I mean, obviously there is, but there's the padding that NFL players have that the NBA players, there's potentially a bit more skin on skin. It does seem strange that they haven't been able to come up with a solution to make it work when indoor sports seem to be finding the solution and progressing with it. Basketball did have the advantage that it wasn't starting the season. They were finishing the season there. Yeah, very true. So there was a finite amount of games that they had to play. Like you say, it's an indoor sport, but I don't think that the contact is any less, really. If you're going to get coronavirus playing basketball with someone, you'll get it playing football with someone and vice versa. It's, oh, it's, I completely agree, yeah. There's the same level of risk there. And maybe, maybe potentially offensive linemen, defensive linemen are going to be up in each other's faces a little bit more. 
I mean, a center against a center, they're seeing each other's faces quite a lot, especially when they're going up for rebounds and stuff. So I don't think really that there's any difference in the risk the players are under. But I think that the NBA, whatever the situation, had a plan earlier on and they executed that plan and they didn't wait for the situation to change. They didn't wait for things to get better. They said, this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to go with. We're going to invest the money to do this. They've gone and done it. And they'll be able to finish the league. You know, what next season holds, that's a different thing. Yeah. But at the moment, they've shown leadership, which I think the NFL hasn't seen. And it's not a good optic, really, when you have so many senior players just basically tweeting out there that they just don't have an idea of what's going on. And talking about how coronavirus is going to potentially affect the season going forward, there's other things that the coronavirus has affected during the off-season, which I think you're going to dive into now, right, Joe? Yeah, so uh, one thing we're going to talk about this week, which ties into coronavirus, but it ties into where we are in the season, is a franchise tag. The deadline for agreeing contracts of players on a franchise tag expired last week. Now, franchise tag is something that you're not too familiar with. Is that right? Yeah, well, I suppose it's more about the technicalities surrounding the franchise tag and the implications that it has on contracts. So I think for some of our more casual listeners out there, it'd be a great thing to talk about and just give a slight overview on. Sure. So a franchise tag is something that you can really get bogged down in if you try to work out how it's calculated. The formula for doing it is quite opaque and you don't really need to know that too much. The basic fundamentals of a franchise tag are that when a player is coming to the end of his contract, he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. He can have the franchise tag placed on him if the club so wish. And basically what the franchise tag allows you to do is to keep a player for another year where you haven't been able to agree a contract with him. Now, the compensation that a player gets when he's on the franchise tag is quite good. Like I said, the calculation to work it out is quite complicated. But basically, if you're on the exclusive franchise tag, it's the average of the five highest paid players in that position. Or if you're an unrestricted franchise tag, it's the average of the franchise tag placed on that player's position over the last five years. It gets quite complicated, but basically all you need to really know is that a franchise tag gives you a relatively high salary for a player who plays that position. So all in all, sounds good. Why wouldn't you want to do that? So why don't players like it? Players don't like being franchise tagged because basically it's a one-year contract. Sure, the money is guaranteed, but it's for one year. And for some players as well, they feel that they should be resetting the market. Let's go back to Levon Bell in 2018. He felt that he should be doing a market-breaking contract, signing the highest deal that a running back has ever signed. He felt that he should be played like a top running back and a second-wide receiver as well. He wanted huge money. They slapped the franchise tag on him, which meant that he was going to get nowhere near the value that he thought he was worth. And what's more, rather than being signed up to a contract over several years with multi-year guarantees, he had one year guaranteed on a contract that he thought was less than what the value was. So this is where you get players not liking being tagged. Nine times out of ten, a player won't want to be franchise tagged. It's definitely something that a team will do for their benefit rather than the player's benefit. Yeah, absolutely. So we're now going to go on and talk about a few players that have recently been franchise tagged or were up for being franchise tagged but have worked through and got themselves a deal. That's right. And with a franchise tag deadline expiring last week, I think now's a great time to talk about it. So... First on the list, should we kick off with our friend Dak Prescott? Dak Prescott. Now, I mentioned just a couple of moments ago about Levon Bell potentially valuing himself more than what the market saw him at. 
and more than what his team saw him at. Dak Prescott, it's looking like Jerry Jones does not want to pay him the big money. And by big money, I mean Patrick Mahomes' money. Dak Prescott's been a solid player, I'd say, over the last few years. He's been in the league now for four years. First season, rookie season, came in, amazing season. Had the third best passing rating in the league. I think only Brady and maybe Rodgers were in front of him in 2016. He had an outstanding year. Since then, I think you can only really say that his play has declined. Yeah, he had quite a strong year in some terms this season. He certainly upped his game to a certain degree. Uh, his passer rating nearly at 100 at 99.7. He went nearly far. I wouldn't say that he upped his game at all, Jazz. He went 8-8, right? And we joked about this Cowboys team last week. They looked like a team who wanted to lose. They were in an easy division. They only had to overcome the Eagles. They just looked rubbish. They looked a really, really bad team. They looked like they couldn't win and he looked like he couldn't lead them to victories. He didn't look like a leader who was going to take them to playoffs, let alone take them to Super Bowl. Okay, I'm going to throw this back at you because you had a go at me last week for saying that you can't put it all on Derek Carr. I think in the same way, you can't put it all on Dak Prescott here. He threw for nearly 5,000 yards. He threw for 30 touchdowns, which is way more than he's done in any previous season. Yeah, what's let him down is the 11 interceptions and his completion percentage is average. The yardage is misleading, though, because if you're behind in games, you're always going to air the ball out more. So game management and, you know, turnovers, 11 interceptions, meh, it's not elite. You know, that's... No, and I think we're on the same page here in that we're both probably in agreement that Dak Prescott is certainly not elite. And I would say with some level of confidence, we both feel that Dak Prescott is never going to lead the Cowboys to a Super Bowl. You brought an interesting name into the conversation there, Derek Carr. 2016, his rookie year, like I said, Dak Prescott was great. He had a really good rookie year. His second year, 2017, his stats were exactly the same as Derek Carr's. Each player threw for 22 touchdowns. They threw for eight interceptions. Their passing rating was different by 0.2. And the yardage they threw for was within 150. They were the exact same player in 2017. 2018... And then since then, basically Dak Prescott has plateaued and he's not really gone anywhere near his rookie season and he's not breaking into the elite quarterback room in the league, in my view. Yeah, and I think for that reason, the franchise tag is the correct move for the Cowboys. But there were whispers around the time of the trade that they were close to finalising a deal. I think the only risk that we have here is that Dak Prescott has a chip on his shoulder and goes away and pulls out another season like he did in his rookie year. Now, from what he's shown us, that looks unlikely. He's had four goes and he's done it once, and he's not done it in the last three years. But if he goes out there in 2020, plays an absolute blinder, pass a rating of 105, thrown 35 touchdown passes to five interceptions, then it's going to be a lot harder for Jerry Jones to go to the negotiating table at the end of 2020. But that's what they need from him, right? Because if he doesn't do that then what are they sticking with him for? We spoke last week about their really great wide receiver core, the young talent that they've picked up in the draft. What's the point of wasting that behind Dak Prescott if all he is going to be is what he is at the moment? Well, he's in that weird tier of quarterbacks who aren't what you'd consider elite, who aren't the Bradys, the Rodgers, the Mahomes, the Watsons, the quarterbacks who you think are going to lead a team to a Super Bowl. But he's not in that expendable tier 
where the fans and management are looking to get rid of him as soon as possible. Dak Prescott, he's no scrub. He shouldn't go chasing waterfalls is what you're saying, Joe. <laughs> you shouldn't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> if you go chasing waterfalls, who knows what you're going to end up with. You go to the draft and you could pick up a quarterback in 2021 with a first round pick who turns out to be a dud. And you can do this year after year. The Browns just shown how easy it appears to be to do this. He's that kind of quarterback who's shown enough flashes, who's had a good enough season that you'd be a very, very brave front office to not give him every single chance. If he does go and they replace him with someone who's a lot worse, you know, that's when people get sacked. So good deal or bad deal from the Cowboys' point of view? I think it's the right move from a Cowboys' point of view. I think just because the amount of money which Dak Prescott wanted, he wanted top end of the 30s, low 40 millions, and he would have wanted a few years guaranteed. And I think that would have been massively overpaying for him. If the Cowboys had done that, they would have been overpaying big time. And they would have potentially been guaranteeing 40 million to Derek Carr for three or four years. And (laughs) you can say what you like about Derek Carr, but that's the player that Dak Prescott has been for the last three years. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I also think it was the right move because it's just way too much of a gamble to give somebody that's shown a single flash in their rookie season that much money. Although I would say you were hopeful of Derek Carr last week. When we talked about the Raiders, you thought he could do it. But Derek Carr's not on that money. True. That is true. Derek Carr does what he does. He does it for 25 mil a year. And I mean, you know, that's probably in today's market, that's the right price. So if Dak Prescott was being paid... 25 mil a year, three years guaranteed, you'd say great. If he was asking for 30, low 30, you'd probably say that's fair enough because he's a young quarterback with upside. But he's not on the top end of 30, going up to 40 million. No, I agree. And now he's found himself at, what, 31 and a half million with the franchise tag. So it's not an awful return for him, but he'll he, have... He's not going to starve. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to start. And, you know, that still makes him the, I think, seventh highest paid quarterback in the league. He's making more money this year than Matt Ryan will, who's gone to Super Bowl. He's making more money than Jimmy G, who's gone to Super Bowl. He's making considerably more money than Drew Breeses, who's won Super Bowl. And, you know, there's very good quarterbacks who are getting paid less than he is. So he's probably really in the right spot. Eighth highest paid. I think that's quite an interesting thing when you look at the NFL and the landscape of the players and what they get paid, potentially against another sport like NBA or something like that. There's often strange disparity between what players are paid and what their value is, depending on obviously when they signed on to their contracts. I feel like the landscape of the pay grades changes quite dramatically quite quickly. And you mentioned that Breeze, who's gone to Super Bowl, being paid less than somebody like Dak Prescott. And it all just depends on when your time's up and what the market looks like in terms of what you can demand for your services. It's cycles. And every few years you get a player who comes along and breaks the market. And when that happens, all the players who come after him suddenly get paid more. And if you ride the market in the right way and get lucky, then you can get paid a lot more than what you're worth. If you don't, you can be a system quarterback who wins six Super Bowls, but never ends up anywhere near the highest paid list. Yeah. That's how it goes. So then that leads us on into our second player to talk about here, which is AJ Green, who has got the franchise tag with the Bengals. And AJ Green's probably quite a good one for us to talk about because we've mentioned him once or twice now on the podcast. 
and what we think his value is. So I think it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on AJ and how you think that went down, Joe. I think that AJ Green is a player who was always going to end up with a franchise tag this year. When you go back to peak AJ Green, you know, 2013, 2014, I'd say at that point, the only player who was comparable to him in the league at that time was Julio Jones. They came into the league, I think, in the same year or one year apart. And it was AJ Green and Julio Jones who were the elite wide receivers in the early 2010s. Injuries have blighted him in the last two to three seasons. And since 2015, which was the last year that AJ Green was playing at his classic peak level, he's not had a good season since. He's had okay seasons, but 2016, he missed six games. 2017, he was dealing with injuries. He played every single game, but he only just got over a 1,000 yards and eight touchdowns, which for the level he was playing at, isn't what he was capable of. And in 2018, he's played nine games and didn't break 700 yards. He missed the whole of the 2019 season. So due to injuries, there's huge question marks around AJ Green right now. The Bengals, though, have a new quarterback who have invested a lot in It's going to help him no end to have a player like AJ Green on the field if he does get on the field and if injuries allow. It would have been suicide to give him a proper contract with guarantees in there, which is what he'd want to sign. This is very much a one-year prove-it kind of contract. If he's injured again, you know, he'll get cut at the end of the year and end up on a different team being paid nowhere near what a top wide receiver would probably get paid. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that we were talking about coronavirus earlier and the impact that that's had. AJ Green's come out and said he thinks the reason that any deal didn't get over the line is because of that. And I think the Bengals were probably quite keen to see how he might have performed in training camps to make that view of whether it was worth reaching out for a longer term deal for him. But I completely agree. I think this is a smart move by the Bengals. Going into this, I think they have around $24 million cap space. Green's franchise tag comes in at $18 million. And they've just got rid of Andy Dalton, as you discussed, they got their rookie quarterback now. But Andy Dalton was going to have to be put on $17 million. So the difference between that and AJ Green on 18, it's almost a no-brainer. They've got the cap space. As you mentioned, he was an excellent player coming into the league. So you hold out for one more season and you see, can he return to that form? And if he can, you've got yourself a great player there. I think this is a great deal for AJ Green, really. When you look at what he's done in the last three years, and I know it's not his fault, it's injuries, but you know this is a performance league. It's a what have you done for me recently league. He's not done very much recently. He's did nothing at all in 2019. And he's going to be the fourth highest paid wide receiver in the league going into this year. Well, if he does perform, if he does get back to those levels, he's going to have all the leverage. To put things into context, this year he will be making more than ODB, more than Mike Evans, more than DeAndre Hopkins, more than Devante Adams. The only players who are making more than him are Michael Thomas, Amari Cooper and Julio Jones. So he's being paid like an elite wide receiver when we haven't seen elite wide receiver production going into the season for nearly five years now. So how has that ended up then? seeing that he should be paid the average of the top five. They've basically used a non-exclusive franchise tag on him, which means that he gets the average of the wide receivers who are placed on the franchise tag over the last five years. But then that's adjusted for inflation as well by how much the salary cap has gone up by. So the formula to get there, it's not something you're probably going to do on the back of a fag packet, but that's how he's got there. 
So would you say this is one of those franchise tags that seems to have made complete sense, is probably the right move for the Bengals, but actually probably works out really well for AJ Green as well. It's one of those ones that it would have been bad for them not to have done it for everyone involved, and it's probably good for everyone involved to have got this franchise tag done. I think that AJ Green is doing very well out of this. I think that with all the uncertainty that's going on in the market right now, I think that for any team to pay AJ Green top five wide receiver money, it wouldn't have happened. And I think that in the open market, had he been cut from the Bengals, he wouldn't have signed a contract where he'd be making 17 million in 2020. That's my belief. Maybe there's someone in a front office who'd be taking a flyer on him, but there's just so many question marks around him with the injuries they've had. I agree, but it wouldn't have made any sense for the Bengals to cut him either. I think, look, he's got 17 million guaranteed there, right? So whatever happens, that's guaranteed money. Yeah, there's cap space, but arguably they could have picked up a cheaper wide receiver who might not have the upside that AJ Green has, but who'll be a reliable target. I'm not saying that's the right call, but I'm saying there's other ways that the Bengals could have done this. They've stuck with AJ Green, which I would imagine the majority of fans would probably want them to do. I guess they're kind of giving him this one last chance, which again, it's what the franchise tag's there for. Yeah, and just imagine if they hadn't and he had returned to form, that would have, I mean, you talk about people getting fired, that would have been a massive backfiring there. Yeah, and this, don't get me wrong, this has happened. Let's let's look at the next play we're going to talk about here, Shaquille Barrett. Now, Shaquille Barrett had five seasons at the Broncos where he did nothing, right? He started a lot of games. He joined the league in 2014, Five seasons with the Denver Broncos. He played 61 games, started 15 of them. He made 14 sacks. 14 sacks in five years, which for an edge rusher is nothing that special at all. You know, his tackle counts were up, but he did not appear to be an elite pass rusher and the Broncos certainly weren't using him as such. Okay, the main guy there is Von Miller and he's been set up to rush the passer more, but there was nothing shining out about Shaquille Barrett at all. He had a second round restricted free agent tender placed on him. Tampa Bay Buccaneers took that up at the start of last season and Shaquille Barrett ended up playing with them. He played in 61 games for the Broncos, only started 15, had 14 sacks, Starts playing with Tampa Bay at the start of this year. Starts all 16 games. Has a return of 19 and a half sacks in one season. That's right, that's five and a half more sacks than he's had for the whole of the rest of his previous career. Leads the league in sacks. And he's got the franchise tag slapped on him this year. And I think this is a perfect example of why the franchise tag really helps teams out here. This is a player who, what is he? What is Shaquille Barrett? Is he going to be a league-leading edge rusher for the next five years or has he just had one flash in a pan great season put franchise tag on him let's find out the flip side of this as we review it is that this is what teams have to weigh up it's a good opportunity to delay for a year before you put a major deal on the table to basically say is a long-term deal worth it for a player like this but the counter argument to that is if you do wait and they have a second strong performance then you are going to have to pay big money to keep them. But if they have that second great performance, then that's not a problem. Then they've basically proven that they're going to have this level of play and they can do it more than once and it wasn't just a fluky season. And so then, yeah, pay him. Or if you don't want to pay that money for him, well, then you know what you're not paying for. 
But I think right now, the Buccaneers potentially don't know what they have with him. He's had an absolute anomaly. I, I think for a player like Shaq, you're absolutely right. But there'll be other situations where teams will think, we like what we've got here. He could go on to be something big. Let's give him a deal now before he has two back-to-back seasons of great play and we have to pay big, big money. And I suppose the teams that are making those decisions are the ones with a little less cap space. I think that you're thinking too much like an owner there and not thinking like a player. Because as soon as a player has that big season, they're not thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to hedge my bets and sign up for a few years now. Shaq Barrett thinks that he's top dog. And why shouldn't he? He led the league in sacks last year. So he's thinking, I should get paid like a top edge rusher. I got the most sacks. I got more sacks than Aaron Donald. I got more sacks than Everson Griffin. I got more sacks than anyone else. Why shouldn't I get a big money? So he's going to want that big money right now. He wants that big money right now. And that's why they haven't been able to work out a long-term deal and why he's still playing under the franchise tag. So all in all, really, yeah, I get what you're saying there. But that's just not really how it works. As soon as you've had that great season, even if owners, fans, people from the outside looking in might think, "Mm, is that just a flash in a pan? Has he just had a miraculously good season? You still, as a player, want to get paid as much as you can, as quick as you can, because, you know, NFL, not for long. You've got to take the most of your opportunities. And he'll want to try to be leveraging himself on the monster season that he's just had. And the franchise tag is basically just a way of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers pushing back on that and saying, yeah, well, let's just see what happens. It'd be interesting to look at the franchise tag over the history of the sport and see if there is any difference in performance. I'd be really interested to know if, on average, franchise tag players perform better because they're playing for that big contract or whether the majority of them don't perform because, in actual fact, they do have one big season and they're not long-term big players that deserve those contracts. It would be interesting to see where that balance lies. I think on the whole, the players who get the franchise tag are generally high-end players who have either been playing well for a while and the future's a bit uncertain, like we have with AJ Green, or players who have gone on to greatness. If you want the best example, really, of someone using a franchise tag to their advantage and not being scared to go on a franchise tag, that's Kirk Cousins. Man loves a franchise tag. Man loves a franchise tag. Now, he's not anymore, but for a while, Kirk Cousins managed to get himself the biggest contract in the league. Kirk Cousins played the game and he made it work for him. He was franchise tagged by Washington. He didn't want that. He wanted a long-term contract. But because he played at a level which still justified him being either franchise tagged again, which gets very expensive to franchise tag someone two years running because you have to increase their salary by 20% at least. He had to then basically be put on a high contract. And, you know, the Vikings did that. They guaranteed him a huge amount of money. At the time, I think it was the most that a play had ever been guaranteed. Uh, And then he's managed to leverage it again and he's got an extension this year. So he'll still be paid going through till at least 2021. Kirk Carson was franchise tagged. It didn't work to his detriment whatsoever. He ended up getting a great deal. For a lot of people, he's being paid more than what he should be being paid. I don't necessarily agree with that, but he's but he's definitely on a great deal now. So a few other players that we wanted to discuss were a couple of running backs. Derek Henry, who got paid some rather big money. He was on the franchise tag list, but they managed to get a deal worked out in the end. And then the other player that's recently been franchise tagged, Kenyon Drake, who has had a turnaround season since going to the Cardinals from the Dolphins. Yeah, so it's interesting that we're talking about these two. 
Derrick Henry, Kenyon Drake, both 26 years of age, both played running back, both played running back at Alabama, both had a tag slapped on them in 2020. You know, the start of the career of these guys, you know, ran very much in tandem. They know each other well, they're friends, their careers have taken a very similar path. Derrick Henry's going to be getting a lot more money in 2020 than Kenyon Drake is. This is down to a multitude of things, but let's, let's take a look at this. Derrick Henry, he'll be making 12.5 million, not on the tag now, because like you said, he agreed a longer term deal. Kenyon Drake's playing on the uh, transition tag, and he's going to make just under 8.5 million this year. So, you know, a good 33% less. Kenyon Drake, in my eyes, and not everyone is going to agree with me here, so this is slightly controversial. Kenyon Drake is a better player all around than Derrick Henry. He doesn't have the power that Derrick Henry has, right? He's not a power back, but he can catch the ball. Derrick Henry can't catch the ball, right? So, yeah, okay, he can run through, he can go for yards after the tackle. He's had a couple of good seasons with the Titans, but he's a limited back, and he's getting paid similar money to David Johnson, who, don't get me wrong, David Johnson, for his output, is overpaid. But David Johnson was paid to run and catch the ball. Levon Bell was paid to run and catch the ball. Derrick Henry's getting similar money to these guys. And Derrick Henry's only getting paid to run with the ball because he can't catch. It's funny that you should mention that because I, I've got up here the four players that are getting paid more than Derrick Henry. And there is a startling thing that all four have in common. And you've mentioned two of them. So they are Le'Veon Bell, David Johnson. Ezekiel Elliott and Christian McCaffrey. All of those four guys are dual threat running backs. They can exactly. line up a wide receiver if need be, but they can come out of the backfield and catch the ball. They can run the ball very well as well. They're dual threat. Derek Henry is, okay, he's at the bottom of that. He's only making 75% of what C-Mac is, but he's in that grouping and he shouldn't be there. In today's game where we're going to committee backs, which is fine, that works for people like Henry. He has a role there. But he's not a feature back. He's been paid feature back money when we should just be getting rid of feature backs altogether. So just to provide potentially a counter argument, I've just been looking at what is called the offensive share metric, which looks at a variety of statistics, but it's sort of largely weighted around how many men are in the box and the efficiency of running when the box is faced with eight or more men in it. And Henry has the highest grade out of any of the backs whatsoever. So completely agree. He is a one-dimensional back. But Are you trying to hit me with stats, Jess? I'm just saying he is a one-dimensional back, but he is the best in that position. Yeah, but then flip this again, right? So he's being used as a workhorse when the box is stacked against him. Guys like that don't have long careers. Guys like that get broken down guys like that become Todd Gurley. It's incredibly harsh, but for players like Derek Henry, squeeze what you can squeeze out of him, but don't pay him. Like, And that sounds horrible, that sounds harsh, but that's how you win Super Bowls. And something I love to come back to time and time again, look at teams that have won Super Bowl over the last 10 years and tell me how many of them were paying running backs big money. You won't find many. And I don't disagree with you. I think he's overpaid. I think the point you raised earlier was bang on. He is a one-dimensional back. He's not a passing catchback, but he is probably the best back or the best power back. And yes, he's getting paid too much for it. But if you lose him, you know, what does that cost the Titans? He's rich man's Frank Gore. 
right? <laughs> Don't pay him that money. Get yourself a cheaper power back. Get yourself a cheaper scat back. And both of those guys combined will make less than 12.5 million. And you've got the advantage that if one guy gets injured, you've still got the other guy who can do what he's doing. And you're not losing a 12.5 million player if he does get beat up, which Derek Henry inevitably will get hurt at some point over the next few years. Derek Henry, in many ways, reminds me a bit of Adrian Peterson. Yeah, I think the only counter argument to that is the way that the Titans are set up. They used him so much, which plays into your argument of the fact that he'll probably get burnt out very, very quickly. But you talk about get a cheaper back. If you do that, the Titans are terrible next season. They need Henry. They're not a lot without him, I don't think. Certainly, I mean, he was the lead in terms of rushing touchdowns. He was the lead in terms of rushing yardage. They ran everything through him. And I don't think they perform without him. And that's why they've overpaid. But the Titans are paying Ryan Tannehill 29.5 million as well. They've got young wide receivers like AJ Brown. The Titans don't have to play like this. And they're paying other players like they shouldn't be playing like this. Yeah, well, then I suppose that's a question for the team and changing their strategy. But that's certainly the way they played last season. I think that whatever way you look at this, you're paying... Basically, rich man's Frank Gore, 12.5 million. Well, Frank Gore is at the Jets and he's going to be pounding the rock on the goal line, doing all the things that a power back has to do and he'll be doing it for a million this year. And you've got a future Hall of Famer there at the Jets who every year people say it's the end of the road for Frank Gore. Well, it's not. He's going to play again. He's going to get touchdowns this year and he's going to probably have another great season. He's going to do it for a million and 50k. Yeah, but he is at the end of his season. So that's what every single team is saying. They're saying, look, this is all we're giving you because you're near the end. And he takes it because that's what's on offer. He takes it every year. (laughs) He does. (laughs) It's never the end. Like it's been the end for Frank Gore for the last five or six years. No, I agree. Listen, you should never discount Frank Gore. I'm with you on that. All I'm saying is this about Henry. I think the Titans have overpaid. I'd agree with that. I do think that he is exceptional in his position as a power back this year has not been a fluke when you look at his efficiency over past years and if he can remain healthy I don't think it's a terrible deal for the Titans I think you're exaggerating there mate because just saying that this year is not a fluke he's never played a full season right let's give a start in like in terms of games started he started two games his rookie year two games in 2017 he started three quarters of a season in 2018, ended up just over a thousand yards, which yeah, is 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 grand. But it was down the stretch in 2018 and in 2019 where he's really come through. For most of 2018, there was nothing mind blowing about his stats. It was basically from December onwards where he started to come into his own. So I'm talking about efficiency here, and I'm talking about when men are stacked in the box. This OSM ranking in 2016, he was second highest running back for efficiency in that situation. 2017, he was the seventh highest running back and 2018, the third highest running back. So in terms of what he can deliver when he's healthy, he can deliver. Now, I'm not looking at this stat, but if memory serves me correct, you've got it in front of you. In one of those years, was it Leonard Fournette who actually led? It may have been. I don't have that up in front of me. And look at where Leonard Fournette is now. He's almost an afterthought of the Jags now. The Jags don't really want him there and his stars faded. You can have these seasons where that kind of stuff happens. But at the end of the day, 
I don't know. I think they're massively overpaying. For half the money, you get Latavius Murray and Tevin Coleman. For literally half the money, you can get both of those two players. And one of them can catch the ball. Hmm. It'll be good to see how it pans out. I don't know. My honest response is I don't know. I think it could go one of two ways. Henry is a talent in his position, but I agree. 50 million is a lot of money for somebody who doesn't catch the ball. Well, for the money that he's getting, what's kind of interesting here is that he's basically getting a little bit more than what he would have got had the Titans franchise tagged him for the next two years. He's getting just a little bit more than that guaranteed. And then the rest of the 50 million isn't guaranteed. I think it's like 26 million that's actually guaranteed. I'm going to throw this out there. I've seen throughout a prediction every single week. He's not going to get 1,500 yards in 2020 like he did last year. And he's not going to get 16 touchdowns. Both of those, I think, were his high watermark. And the player that they're paying for is not the player they're going to get going forward. That's if he doesn't get injured either, which is a high likelihood considering the way he plays and, like you say, the way that defenses like to stack the box against him. So I think what we're really seeing here, Chaz, is the crux of a franchise tag, that it's quite a controversial tool, that it definitely leads to a difference of opinion between fans, players, owners. Just in the conversation that we've had tonight, I think we disagree on a few things here. Overall, we're seeing the franchise tag used a lot more this season because it's been harder for teams to reach deals. So there's, I think in 2020, there's going to be the most players sitting on the franchise tag for nearly 10 years. Franchise tag deadline has passed. The players that we've discussed, aside from Derek Henry, are all going to be on the franchise tag going into the 2020 season. For some players who we haven't mentioned, like Anthony Harris, I think that was originally a bargaining chip. Keep him on the franchise tag, but then trade him. Nothing materialized. Again, probably partly due to COVID. But for other players, and for quite a few players, this is going to be a suck it and see, show it and prove it season. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how things pan out. Dak Prescott's got a huge year in front of him. Kenyon Drake's got another big year in front of him. All these players have huge years in front of them with only one year of guaranteed money and the chance to perhaps cash in on something lucrative next year or the chance to undo the good work we've done in the seasons leading up to this. It's been a really good chat this week, Jazz. It's been a lot of fun. And each week down is another week closer to a bit of actual real football where we can finally start to see if any of these predictions of ours come true. I think it's seven weeks until we're supposed to see football. And I'm absolutely counting down the days. See you next week for some more chat, Joe. See you next week, Charlie.